0: This week's episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020 is brought to you by The Siren and the Deep Blue Sea, book two in the Embraced by Magic series. Game of Thrones meets The Princess Bride in the hilarious series combining romance and high fantasy by New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Carolyn Sparks. Witty and epic, The Siren in the Deep Blue Sea immerses readers in a world populated by duplicitous elves, sentient trees, shapeshifting dragons, and warrior princesses. Raised on the magic seeped Isle of Moon, Meve is used to unusual powers, and the way they fuel the politics of her world. But when she discovers an ability to shapeshift at will, she knows who she wants to share it with first. Brody. The enigmatic, infuriating shifter spy has always made time for Meave, but it's been almost two months since she's seen him. And though no one else believes Brody is in danger, Meave is more than ready to rescue him herself. Cursed as a boy by the Sea Witch, Brody can spend only two hours a day in his human form, a restriction that limits his future and muzzles his heart. Plus, Meave teases him for being such a pretty dog instead of appreciating his manly charms. To win his freedom, he must take on a terrible disguise. And when Meave finds out, she'll unleash a tempest like no other. The Siren in the Deep Blue Sea is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at (music) kensingtonbooks.com. everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I'm Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. And this is a podcast for any feminist who feels exhausted and overwhelmed by everything they have to do in 2020, and yet still worries that they are not doing enough. And we are talking today about an evidence-based strategy for reducing overwhelm and exhaustion. It takes, it can take literally no time. Mm-hmm. Or it can take, you know, half an hour of your day, depending on how you choose to do it. And it's definitely pleasant. The whole point of it is that it's pleasant, apart from all the feelings you might have about yeah. uh, <laughs> enjoying enough. pleasure. Because in these research, they call it savoring, which is not a word I enjoy. I don't know why. Do you like the word savoring?
1: No, it doesn't feel meaningful.
0: Yeah, no, me either. And it, it's too close to, like, savory the flavor yeah. or savory the herb. Yeah. But we call it pausing for pleasure. And its is, it it is exactly what it says on the packet. It's where you draw your attention away from all the other things you could be paying attention to right now. And you just pay attention to something that feels good, that is pleasurable. Amelia, for example, has brought with her to the podcast... A donut. I'm prepared. What kind of donut is it?
1: It is a Entenmann's crumb-covered frosted buttermilk donut.
0: Is that good? I thought you were going to have some kind of fancy good donut.
1: Well, it may not be especially delicious or fresh-made, but it tastes like the donuts we ate when we were in the third grade oh, at Grandma's house having yeah. tea, you know?
0: Yeah. Okay, so uh, do you want to show us how it works? Sure.
1: I mean, as far as I know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break off a piece of this donut, and I'm going to notice, oh, look at, like, the crunchy edges, because it's got sugar coating on it, and it, like, crumbles a little bit, and that's, like, the best part is the crispy, crumbly part, so I'm going to take a bite of that part, and the sugar sort of dissolves immediately, (laughs) and then we have the little resistance of the crunchy, crumbly, fried
0: edge. You're, You're good at describing a donut.
1: Yeah. It's so good. And the sugar like rushes into my eyeballs and I can feel like the immediate, boom, I just ate a big mouthful of sugar and it feels really good.
0: It's so good. Yum. So what you're doing is actually the amplified version of it where not only are you taking a moment to withdraw your attention from everything else and just pay attention to something that is pleasurable, you're also sharing that experience with other people
1: well i thought it would be not as entertaining if i just did it in silence
0: for sure for sure i I had no expectation that you were going to just going to like sit there in silence and eat a donut and just chew but it does amplify the experience and it it helps all of us because we get that sort of vicarious like oh yeah sounds really good yum (laughs) but also it amplifies the experience for you it makes it a bigger experience because you shared it that's true It's like it spreads out from your body into the space around you. And it just like it expands the experience. Okay.
1: It did feel expanded.
0: Yeah. So that's all. That's all that's actually required to do it. Like it's incredibly simple. It takes, it can take like you were going to eat food today anyway, right? Almost certainly. Yeah. So whatever food you're going to eat, like when you put it in your mouth, instead of thinking about 12 other things or driving your car or all the things we could be doing, reading Facebook while we eat, you just notice the food and enjoy the shit out of it. Yeah, whatever that food happens to be.
1: This overlaps with two other wellness strategies that we talk about. The first is um, pay attention to your food, mindful shopping, mindful eating, which is a rest strategy. Um, it counts as your forty two percent, your're seven to nine hours of sleep, uh, your stress reducing conversation, and you're paying attention to your food paying attention to your food, a form of rest, but also pausing for pleasure, which accomplishes things in addition to just being restful, which I'm sure Emily will tell you about now.
0: Yeah. So the thing about this is that it is more complex at the level of our brain than it is at the level of our behavior. And that complexity is where we find the power of pausing for pleasure. I find it motivating because... It is contrary to human giver syndrome to pause for pleasure and actually enjoy an experience that you're having. Like, you're not supposed to do that. The rule, it goes against the rule of being a perpetually pretty, happy, calm, generous and attentive to the needs of others. If you withdraw your attention from other people's needs, then you are failing as a human giver. And how dare you? You selfish bitch. Right? Yep. And so in order to motivate myself to continue doing this, it helps me to understand why this is so powerful and how it actually does support me in service of being a giver, like being a contributing member of society. So to begin with, pausing for pleasure is about pleasure. And pleasure, if only it were as simple as like a donut. Like a donut is custom designed to be as intensely rewarding a food experience as there is. It is a combination of fat and sugar that is, in sugar in particular, is innately, massively rewarding. Mm. So your brain just goes berserk when you put that in your mouth. Uh, and the chemistry of an Entenmann's donut is such as, like you say, it just dissolves instantly and it crawls up into your eyeballs. Mm-hmm. It's like the sugar eats your face. In a good way. It's so instantaneous in the way it <laughs> yeah. hits your tongue and moves around.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But not every pleasure that we enjoy is as sort of like innately simply obviously rewarding some pleasure requires us to shift into a different state of mind in order to experience it and at this point i'm going to uh, pretend to be a lab rat and if you've heard i want, i talk about this in one of my ted talks if you've read come as you are you know the science this is one of my favorite studies okay so we're going to be a lab rat we're a very experienced efficient, competent lab rat. And the researchers have painlessly inserted a probe into our nucleus accumbens shell. And when they zap our nucleus accumbens shell at the front, it automatically activates a, what's that? Exploration behaviors. We move towards stuff just with activation of the nucleus accumbens shell in the front. We go, what's that? Exploration, curiosity, approach, moving toward, right? That's, hmm. And when they zap the back, as a lab rat, we go, what the hell is that? And we stomp our feet uh, and we, we're kicking up dust in the face of a predator. There's a video on YouTube of a rat doing this to a snake and it totally works. You're trying to get the hell away from whatever it is just when you zap the back. what the hell is that? But, okay, so we got that so far. Lab rat, zap the front, you go, ooh, what's that? Zap the back of the brain, you go, what the hell is that? Right? Same part of the brain is in, in charge of both approach and avoid. Right. Depending on where you zap. Mm -hmm. But then we, uh, the lab rat, we get moved into what I call the rat spa. It is dark and totally silent and it smells like home. And in fact, what I call the rat spa, the researchers do simply call the home environment. And this is the environment where the rat feels totally at peace, totally, as opposed to the work environment, the home environment, ideally is one where you just feel really safe. And calm and peaceful and at ease. So just imagine like the most softened muscle state, happy, peaceful, sitting on the balcony overlooking the beach after a massage kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. It's Ocean House (laughs) for a rat. Mm -hmm. And when they zap the front of the nucleus accumbens, what does the rat do? I'm still curious. Yeah. Ooh, 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 what's that? Ooh, what's that? And when they zap the back of the nucleus accumbens, here's where it gets real interesting. When they zap the back, what does the rat do in this blissed out, calm, peaceful, happy state of mind?
1: Still curious. The rat goes,
0: ooh, ooh, what's that? Ooh, exploration. When you are in a calm, peaceful, safe, unthreatened state of mind, your brain will interpret 90% of the nucleus accumbens shell becomes devoted to approach motivation. It will respond with approach, curiosity, interest in response to almost any stimulation even stimulation that in a different context it might have responded to as a potential threat right
1: this makes this makes total sense okay and then and then evolutionarily speaking i just want to like point out that it makes sense in an environment where there might be a threat it makes sense to be adapted to respond to more things as potential threats.
0: See, you have just stepped forward into the next phase of the experiment where they take me, the lab rat, out of the calm, relaxed, peaceful state of mind where I will approach almost anything with curiosity into a space where the lights are on really bright and they're playing music really loudly. Specifically, it is Iggy Pop live from King Biscuit Flower Hour. <laughs> Um, I wondered for a long time, why did they play Iggy Pop to the rats? It turns out, uh, so this study is done at University of Michigan. Iggy Pop is an alum of the University of Michigan, and the grad student who ran it was a fan. Oh. So there you go. <laughs> and we know that Iggy Pop did the job because when they're in this stressed out, loud, brightly lit environment, when you at the front of the nucleus accumbens, what does the rat do? What the hell is that? Mm-hmm. In a stressed out state of mind, the context of your mind, will change how your brain interprets any stimulation so it'll respond to just about anything as a potential threat, even something that in a different context it might have responded to as something to move toward with curiosity.
1: That makes total sense.
0: Now, in the years since this study, a progress has been made in understanding how does the nucleus accumbens know? Oh, that's a good question. Right. And so that's that's still a question that's being explored. Like, what are the connections that change the circuitry of the nucleus accumbens? It's called the affective keyboard because it sort of fades from green means go at the front to red means stop at the back. Mm-hmm. The affective keyboard, and you can play along the keyboard, but the tuning of the keyboard changes depending on the context. So what tunes the keyboard?
1: Yeah, what does tune the keyboard?
0: Right? Like, it's so interesting. Yeah. I so want to know the answer to that question. Yeah. But one of the things that the Savoring Research has found is that this practice of tuning your brain toward pleasure can actually help to mitigate depression. I think... (laughs) This isn't proven, but here's here's my understanding of it, my interpretation of it. I think because the more you spend time tuning your affective keyboard to the pleasure orientation, it's like you're training your brain to toggle to that setting more readily.
1: Okay. I, hold on. I need... Wait, we need to clarify the metaphor. We're having a metaphor crossed wire situation. Oh, okay. I don't know if you mean keyboard like a piano keyboard or keyboard like a... Like a typing keyboard?
0: Oh, they mean it like a piano keyboard.
1: Because you're talking about tuning it, like keyboard, and then you say toggle, and I'm like, well, that's the other kind of keyboard.
0: Well, it's toggling between tunings.
1: You can't toggle between tunings on a keyboard.
0: Not on a literal piano keyboard, but...
1: Maybe on a, like a digital keyboard, you could probably store multiple tunings. Sure. Okay. It's a digital keyboard where you can toggle between stored tunings. Yeah. Okay.
0: Except it's not really. It's as if we invented a piano where you could turn a crank.
1: Oh, like an organ. Different ranks on an organ are tuned differently.
0: Yes, I know less about how an organ works, but my understanding is that there's pipes. Yep. And you can...
1: There's many sets of pipes. Each set of pipes is called a rank. Like, some of the pipes are brass, some of the pipes are woodwind. some of the pipes are just hooty wood. Like, so they sound completely different from each other and they can be tuned independently of each other. That would be a terrible idea because then you couldn't combine them in delicious ways. Um, but you could, theoretically, if we're going to use this as a brain keyboard, you could tune the brass to one kind of scale and tune the woodwinds to another kind of scale and tune the box to another kind of scale.
0: I think all we need to do is, we're getting sort of too deep into the metaphor. Look, I
1: needed a metaphor. Right.
0: <laughs> Okay, so the keyboard is a musical keyboard, Mm -hmm. and it organically can shift from one tuning to a different tuning. Okay. When you change some external factor, it will move.
1: It'll pull a different
0: stop. Sure, there, there you go. Okay. Explain to the people what a stop is.
1: Well, you've heard the expression pulling all the stops. Yes. Pulling out all the stops. Well, when you pull a stop, it opens up one of the ranks of, t- of um, pipes. So when you pull all the stops, you've opened up all the pipes and the whole organ is playing. That's a very rare, weird thing to do because it's very overwhelmingly loud and usually not balanced in a thoughtful way, but it's super loud. So when you just pull a certain combination of stops, you can make different moods and different colors.
0: Yeah, okay. This is our metaphor. The affective keyboard is an organ... And you can have one set of stops in and your brain is in a stressed out state and responds to the world only with the sound settings you get from that set of stops. And then if you boom, switch, like you change what set of stops you've got in and which sets that are pulled out, you get a different kind of sound, right? hmm That has a totally different experience. Yeah. Coming from the same instrument. Yes. That's the affective keyboard and pausing for pleasure. This practice of savoring something that feels good is a practice of switching the stop settings. Great. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Great. Switching switching to the wind preset. Right. Three people will understand what that meant, but for those three people, I just helped.
0: That's great. (laughs) (laughs) And you can probably imagine that like the more you do this, the easier it gets to switch from one to the other. And there is... The where the foot falls down is that, like, the organ can, like, reset itself back into that other setting. Let's give that a name. Like, it's it's the depression setting in real life.
1: Um, If it's unpleasant and harsh, let's call it the brass. Okay, it's the brass Trumpets. setting. Trumpets. Brass, so, like, whatever. if
0: you walk away from this organ, it will just sort of all by itself, like, the mice come into the church and they put the stops back into the brass setting. Mm-hmm. And you have to come in every day and put the stops back into the woodwind setting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, the more you do this, the first of all, the better you get at it. And also, the more effortful it is for the mice to switch it back overnight. Yeah, and eventually they're like, I don't, just, let's, let's just leave it. <laughs> Great. So that's how I think this pausing for pleasure situation actually changes your brain in the long term to... Counteract depression and to make it easier for you to tolerate waves of depression when they do happen.
1: I would like to go a little bit further about why it matters because feeling better for some people is not enough. It's not enough motivation to do a thing. It'll make you feel better. Okay, but why should I bother? Because why is feeling better even worth doing all this work? Sure. That evolutionarily speaking, one of the reasons our brain would develop this capacity to be curious. In a context that feels safe is when we are curious and when we explore, we learn new things. When we learn new things, we learn to adapt to potential dangerous situations in the long run. So it keeps us safer and it keeps us more able to explore new things, which also teaches us things about the other creatures around us and makes us able more to connect to them, which also gives us pleasure and joy and also gives them pleasure and joy. So it actually makes us better citizens.
0: Yeah. It goes back to what stress and feeling trapped actually does, not just to your body, but to your attention. When you're stressed out, your attention gets stuck in just thinking about the problem and you lose your ability to sort of recognize all the different tools that are available to you. And all you know is you've got a hammer in your hand. And so therefore the problem in front of you must be a nail. And you're like a horse wearing blinders. You cannot see the table covered in other tools in front of you.
1: And that's not only unpleasant to experience, it actually is also bad for the world. It makes you
0: worse at solving problems. Yeah, exactly. So it matters for uh, treating depression. It matters for feeling better.
1: And it matters for creating a better world, helping us help each other.
0: Yes, it matters for making the world a better place. Yeah. And it takes so little time. Our brains, as I'm sure you know, have a natural tendency to go to the bad stuff because solving problems is a super important thing that our brains do. And it's easy for your brain to learn that it has to spend all of its time just like working on the puzzles, trying to solve the problems and not spend any time enjoying positive stuff or even just noticing neutral stuff. So it takes deliberate effort. Um, Some people use the word habit to describe this. Yeah. And there's a, a house decluttering, cleaning lady that I listen to. Her podcast is called Slob Comes Clean. She has a book called How to Manage Your Home Without Losing Your Mind and another one called Decluttering at the Speed of Life. And one of the things she talks about is that she thought she needed habits She would just get into the habit of cleaning every day and then it wouldn't be effortful anymore. (laughs) Um, Like, like it's the habit, like, I mean, this is how people use the word habit is like the thing that you just do habitually, right? Like your habit is when you're thinking you go to the kitchen cupboard and pull out a cracker because that's just your habit. And you like, you find yourself in the kitchen with your hand in the cracker box, not even remembering going to the kitchen, right? It just happened habitually. Mm hmm. That is not the kind of habit that pausing for pleasure will probably ever be. I mean, maybe for like the super optimistic, very like mentally stable, non-depressed, non-anxious people who are listening. I know you're out there. Both of them. You probably, (laughs) you probably do have the experience where like you're just sitting there savoring the shit out of some wonderful, delightful moment in your life and you don't even, you didn't even notice that you had switched into that state of mind where you're just enjoying the heck out of whatever it is. But for the rest of us, we're going to have to make an intentional, deliberate choice every day.
1: I want to connect it to the second practice that this overlaps with. First, it overlaps with mindful eating, which is a rest practice. Sure. And the second is that it overlaps with uh, confronting the bikini industrial complex, because food and lovely clothes and like looking great are all pleasurable experiences that are made toxic by the bikini industrial complex. Yes. So this moment that you take to say, I'm eating a donut and the bikini industrial complex does not want me to eat this donut. It wants me to feel so bad about this sugar. It wants me to feel so guilty about what it might do to my body. This donut might put fat on my... And so that complexity and that contradiction of like guilt and enjoying a thing at the same time. This confrontation, when you decide, no, Bikini Industrial Complex, not today, Satan. I'm going to enjoy this donut, and I'm just going to take it at face value and know that this pleasure is good for me. And when it's good for me, it's good for the world.
0: We are having to work so hard to, like, justify and explain why it can matter for the world that people spend 30 seconds to 5 minutes just paying attention to something that feels good.
1: Because the whole world... Has spent every moment of every listener's life telling them that they don't deserve pleasure. That that pleasure is scary. That pleasure is going to to it's
0: dangerous, hurt them. Selfish. Yeah, it's it it's, makes it's, them a bad person. It's
1: gluttonous. Yeah, I mean it's literally one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, lust. All the things that are that feel good are. Sinful. It's also sloth.
0: Yeah, laziness. How dare you just like stand there and breathe a fresh breeze? Yeah. So, reason number one, it trains your brain to go to that positive state, which makes you a better problem solver, as well as more pleasant to be around. And, P.S., it'll help you feel better. Two, it is actually political act to contradict all the cultural messages around bikini industrial complex and human giver syndrome, mm-hmm. to reclaim the sensations of your body as delicious. Mm-hmm. Do we have a third one? Rule of three? It's a rest practice. Oh, it's a rest practice. Right. That was actually the first thing that we mentioned. It's a rest practice. Rest is super good for you for all the reasons we talk about in the three episodes we have. (laughs) About rest. (laughs) About rest and sleep. Yeah. And I wish there were more like specific instructions that I could give.
1: I want to talk about the first time I noticed pleasure. Oh, okay. Because I remember very distant. It was a very memorable moment. I was in my mid-20s first time i noticed something was pleasurable consciously wow. because i had just started medication for depression for the first time and i'd been on it for about 2 weeks and i was driving home from work and i looked up and saw that the sky was blue oh my god the sky is so blue look at the sky that's i never wow and i'd never felt that kind of like intense reflective thoughtful appreciation for something that was just lovely ever dude yeah yay medication
0: i have heard similar stories of people beginning depression medication a story a friend told me about uh walking down the street with a friend who had a couple of weeks into zoloft this is really early into there being antidepressant medications ssris and uh the friend was like wow, these drugs, like, it's it's kind of a high because you walk around and you look at the world and you're like, wow, this is really beautiful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my friend who was walking with that person was like, that's just being happy. Yeah. That's just life. That's that's normal. Yeah. That's the normal state.
1: People who've never been depressed are not aware just how, I mean, what a black and white movie the world turns into when you're
0: in a depressive episode yeah you turn the color on and you're like wow and everybody oh else is god. like what blue and, <laughs> and for some people who are listening it's going to be about reminding them the world is in color mm-hmm. and for other people it's going to be about learning that the world is in color
1: oh my god did you know the world is in color
0: yeah i don't think this is my first memory of pleasure but it's One of the early super intense, this is a peak moment for those familiar with the work of Abraham Maslow, for example, you'll know about peak experiences. The story I tell about when I was an undergrad, I was doing long distance cycling and I was riding out in the hills of rural southeastern Pennsylvania and I climb this big hill and I crest to the top and there's this cow in a field through a wooden fence and I have this sudden moment of like feeling the sun on me and hearing the whirring of my gears and feeling like connected to the mammalian reality of the cow in the field and the grass and the, the way the sunlight was feeding the grass and the grass is feeding the cow and the cow and I were the same. I have this very, (laughs) you and the cow, so ridiculous to say out loud, like describing these things out loud is like, it's absurd.
1: Yeah. Because it's, yeah, but we've all experienced... It. I had a student this week describe to me um, one of the reasons she said she really liked music is because her experience of it is a lot of times going to festivals where the music is just really loud and immersive and you're in this huge crowd and everybody's dancing and you just feel so connected and, like, everybody's one. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, music and crowds and dancing can... That's like a it magical recipe just people, to yeah. make you...
0: Yeah. A lot of people that... That works. Yeah, a lot of people that works. I have never had that experience.
1: Yeah, that's never worked. Well, I've had it in music, but in performing.
0: Yeah, We're, our brains are different from... But one of the important things about you and me talking about this is illustrating the ways that people vary. The way I get there is different from the way you get there, which is different oh, yeah. from the way your student got there. But depressed people taking antidepressants that seems to be pretty reliable <laughs> that's pretty reliable <laughs> again because it's switching the the to- it's toggling your brain's ability to interpret the world as a safe, pleasurable place, yeah. yeah, that is one of the ways the nucleus accumbens knows is uh through your chemistry and drugs change your brain chemistry,
1: yeah, so whatever shifts the keyboard to tune to depression, depression is a your nucleus accumbens is like, everything is a threat. No. Yeah. It's says no to everything.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure precisely, for the nerds out there, no, I don't know precisely the relationship between depression and the nucleus accumbens, the sort of, like, trapped feeling. Like, that's that's really detailed neuroscience that probably doesn't quite exist in a definitive way yet. I'm sure there's people exploring that. But there's a lot of different branches of research that haven't been brought together To my knowledge, or at least not that I understand. But there's something going on there. There's clearly relationship. Yeah. And pausing for pleasure. Literally just taking a minute or two out of your day to pay attention to something that feels good. And if I think most people listening to this will be able to think of something off the top of their heads, that brings them pleasure. Um, When you wrote about it, you wrote about listening to, you know, a kid playing guitar that they've been working really hard to learn. Or laughing at a partner's sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Or like watching the dogs play. Yeah, for sure. Is a moment of like you can truly notice how great that is. Food is definitely like if you can get...
1: Even if it's not your own personal experience of pleasure, but like watching pleasure in people you love. Yeah. um, In animals you care about.
0: Activates pleasure in you. My earliest memory of like an intense pleasure wow... It wasn't as pure as yours. It certainly wasn't as pure as my cow moment in Pennsylvania, but it was like big pleasure. I went to Ireland in 11th grade and uh, we were, I forget where, but we were on a cliff at the edge because there's a lot of shoreline in Ireland. (laughs) Uh, So we were somewhere along the shoreline and the wind was blowing very, very hard. So that you could lean forward at about a 45 degree angle and the wind was pushing back enough to hold you up. Wow. Yeah. So I did that. I like stood at the edge of this cliff very close and leaned hard into this very big ocean smelling wind at the edge of Ireland. Cool. And that was a big like wow actually noticing what sensation feels like and I'm alive in a body kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it, I I did not yet have any idea about, you know, if I like tried to intentionally do that on a regular basis, my life might be better.
1: No, yeah, that didn't occur to me until we were writing about it, and then I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing that I could just do on purpose. That's like a tool that I could pull out when I need it. Yeah, did not occur to me, but I had done it, I have done it unintentionally since since I've been on antidepressants. <laughs> i've been able to like notice when things are pleasurable like we have gone to meals where you know it's like a fancy nice restaurant or even just like just not fancy but like a good restaurant and you order something and it's just so good that you can't talk for a minute yeah i've since i've been in antipressants i've had access to that
0: when we ate at tiffin's it was like that
1: oh yes yes it was <laughs> Ocean house that you mentioned when we eat and, there.
0: And ocean house food is like oh, that. Oh, God.
1: Yeah. And again, it is all about, you know, related to the context. You know, you're on vacation and you're right you know, open to the possibility that something's going to be amazing.
0: Both of those were vacation contexts yeah. where our brains were t- tuned to the woodwind setting. They were tuned to make it, mm-hmm. make our brains have access to. Yeah. I I talk about this with my therapist because... I am a Disney World passholder. Mm-hmm. Back when going to Disney World was a thing people could do mm-hmm. without risking anyone's life, I did it a lot. I think they're allowing they're allowing passholders again, right? Oh yes, they are. But mm. Florida is—you can't get to Disney World without also going to Florida,
1: right? That's a problem.
0: Florida is a problem. <laughs> Florida's a problem. So we haven't gone for months and months.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When ordinarily you go m-
1: multiple times a year. Yeah. Ordinarily, you would have gone at least twice this year already.
0: I have already been twice this year. I went in January and in February.
1: Oh, okay. You would have been four more times this year.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, the February trip, I was going to Florida for work anyway.
1: Oh, so you may as well go to Popeye.
0: Yeah. I mean, I flew into the Orlando airport. Mm -hmm. So I might as well, yeah, just, like, bop into the park. Mm -hmm. Because I've got an annual pass, and it's free to go to the park. Yeah. Paid for to go to the park. But so, anyway... I have talked about this with my therapist. as like, what is it about Disney World? Which is so not the kind of thing you would expect from somebody like me.
1: An introvert. A sort of
0: like hippy, dippy, introvert, lefty, liberal, thinking about the all kinds of problems. Like hey, Disney is problematic Yo. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, they have constructed this environment yeah. that even my brain cannot resist Slipping into vacation mode cannot help but receive the world as a safe, fun, pleasurable place. They're so good at it. Yeah. Now I'm in the middle of doing copy edits and proofreading of pages, and I play the resort loops, the music, from <laughs> the different resorts in my headphones while I read because it helps to keep me in that state. Right. That, like, open, receptive, peaceful Mm-hmm. And part of it is like recalling what it feels like to be in the space that has that loop. Part of it is innate to the loop. They just did a really good job oh, yeah. of making music that does that to you.
1: Yeah. How do you get access to those on, those like Spotify playlists? How do I get those loops?
0: I don't know. You get them from Rich.
1: Okay. I'm going to ask him for them because I'm actually doing this with my... I'm teaching a, a class based on the book that extends into how to use music as a tool for stress management and um we just did like soothing music what counts as soothing music doing analyses of the music to see like okay objectively can we say this makes it soothing turns out no it's more complicated than that anyway if that's a thing that's really effective and yes disney has invested a lot of money
0: into figuring out how to
1: make that work and they have definitely succeeded
0: but so so my stubborn resistant depressed brain really struggles to get to that place and uh Disney has all the technology to get even a brain like mine yeah. into that state.
1: They have done that work.
0: Yeah, they have worked out the technology. And people whose brains are less resistant than mine is can probably access it more readily. But because I have the experience of going to that place and shifting my brain into that state, I truly believe that it makes it easier for me to transition into that state when I am no longer at in the physical space of Disney World.
1: Yeah, you've practiced.
0: Yeah. So much better than a fucking mental health institution, which is maybe, like, everybody who's ever actually been in a mental institution talks about, like, the necessity of getting out as soon as you can because it's really bad for your mental health.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, it saves your life, potentially. And also, like, nobody wants to live in the emergency room. Yeah. Nobody wants to live in a hospital. That's not where you learn how to be well. Right. Pausing for pleasure is how you teach your brain to practice real wellness. And again, like I want to like emphasize that this is not about like staying in that state of perpetual awe and amazement at how beautiful everything is and how we're all connected. La la la. Like that'd be so cool if you wanted to like make that a goal for yourself, you go. Totally. But mostly our brains are designed to oscillate into that state and back out of it and back into it and back out of it. And wellness is, as we know, not a state of mind. It's not a state of mind. It's a state of action. It's the freedom to move through one state into another state and back to another state and back to the other state.
1: And I think in particular right now in 2020, pausing for pleasure is an important skill because very few of us have access to the places that put us in that state just by their nature. Like, right. we're not going to Disney World. I'm not going to Ocean House. Like, I literally canceled my beach vacation with my family because it wasn't safe. For you or for the people who work there. Or for the people... It was. It also wasn't safe for the people who work there, and I felt like it was unethical for me to put them in yeah. that position. So a lot of people don't have access to that stuff because it's not safe or because it's not financially accessible anymore. But this, pausing for pleasure, even if we can't go to a place where we're in it for three days... We can take a minute or five every day and at least still access it a little bit.
0: Yes. It's completely free. And when we do, it it makes our, it's free. Free. You make me choke on my donut. (laughs) (laughs) In conclusion, we are, okay, here's, here's the challenge for us. We are eight weeks away from the election. We are going to practice pausing for pleasure every day. Let us write down at least what we paid attention to and report back what our pleasure pauses were with each episode as we approach the election. Okay. First of all, we'll be held accountable to actually do it mm-hmm. because our brains do not naturally do it. No. Two, um, we'll be sharing it, which amplifies it. hmm And third, it'll be pedagogical. It'll be helping people to l- see what this looks like in our real lives with our stubborn, resistant brains.
1: Yeah. If, anybody, if we can do it,
0: anybody can do it. If we can do it, very literally, anybody can do it. <laughs> and that is this week's episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. Uh, you can follow us on the socials at fsp2020, mostly Instagram. You can email us, project 2020 at gmail.com. And uh, let us know if you already pause for pleasure, if there is a place that makes it easier for your brain to access pleasure. If you have practiced this before, how has it changed your life? Do you remember the first time you ever experienced intense pleasure? Was it when you were in your mid-20s? <laughs> Yikes. Have you yet to experience it? That's, a th- that's, that's real. Has 2020 made it harder for you to get access to that stuff? That is also like super real. People who have no history of trauma are finding themselves locked in freeze that I have mm. heard of. Yeah. Let us know. We want to talk about it. And uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening.
1: (laughs) The sugar like rushes into my eyeballs and I can feel like the immediate boom. I just ate a big mouthful of sugar and it feels really
0: good. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media podcasts.